You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that as we read the Bible, we actually hear God speak to us. So today we're going to be reading the Bible and hearing God speak to us from Isaiah 33. We'll be beginning at verse 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. You'll see a vast land. Your mind will meditate on the past terror. Where is the accountant? Where is the tribute collector? Where is the one who spied out our defences? You'll no longer see the barbarians, a people whose speech is difficult to comprehend, who stammer in a language that is not understood. Look at Zion the city of our festival times. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful pasture, a tent that does not wander. Its tent pegs will not be pulled up, nor will any of its cords be loosened. For the majestic one, our Lord, will be there, a place of rivers and broad streams, where the ships that are rowed will not go. Majestic vessels will not pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Uh, God, in your kindness, as we uh, look at your word, As we see a vision of your beauty, overwhelm us, capture us with a vision of your glory, take our breath away, for Jesus' sake, amen. Have you ever seen something that you just find so overwhelming? Something that once you look at it, it just, it just leaves you speechless and, and takes your breath away. Uh, some of you uh, here might have seen that 2014 Christopher Nolan movie, Interstellar. Uh, more recently, you might have seen Tenet. I had no idea what was going on in that entire movie. But Interstellar is this wonderful, amazing movie. That when you watch it, it's just it's so overwhelming, isn't it? There's images of supermassive wormholes imploding stars, planets made out of nothing but water, clouds consisting of ice, and then a five-dimensional tesseract that transcends time and space itself. The the movie gets even more crazy because you realize that it takes us, it starts in the year 2067. It moves past the event horizon, and then due to gravitational time slippage, which I don't understand, it transports us back to 90 years in the future. Can I tell you, when I watched that movie, I saw cosmic collisions, 
stellar implosions, travel through time, and I walked out feeling overwhelmed. And I suspect that that's something of the experience of reading the prophet Isaiah. You know, if if we read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he mounts this logical defense and argument of the gospel in a courtroom. But when you read the prophet Isaiah, he is painting a compelling picture of the gospel in an art gallery, as it were. You know, if if a picture paints a thousand words, then Isaiah engages our imaginations by painting thousands of words through hundreds of pictures. An abandoned city, a fledgling shoot, a burning coal, a newborn son, a wielded axe, a suffering servant. You see, all these pictures are crafted to do so much more than simply inform us. They're they're painted to inspire us, to help us not just know God as true, but to see the King in His beauty. You see, this prophecy is overwhelming. And it's overwhelming not just in its vision, but in the time that it spans as well. You know, everything in the first half of this book, in chapters 1 to 39, is set 800 years before Jesus' life. But then suddenly, in chapters 40 to 55, we kind of time jump 200 years later into the 6th century BC, beyond even Isaiah's own lifetime. And then in chapters 56 to 66, the prophet, he, he takes us into Stella, right? We kind of get a vision of the future, a picture of eternity beyond history itself. You know, when you read Isaiah and you see that cosmic and eternal vision so great in its magnitude, how can you not be overwhelmed? Overwhelmed by God's beauty. And today... What I want to do is I want to give you that sense of feeling overwhelmed. I want to show you Isaiah's big picture. I want to zoom out and show you the the whole collage, as it were, that every individual image combines to create. I want to take you from the 8th century BC to the 6th century BC to the 21st century today, and then all the way into that fifth dimension into beyond history and into eternity itself. I want us to walk away from here today overwhelmed at the King in all his beauty. And to do that, I want to show you three pictures, three pictures that represent each of the three main sections of Isaiah. And these three pictures, they they combine to form the prophet's grand vision of the King in his beauty. Here they are, the ruined city the suffering servant, and the new world. There's three pictures for you to see before us today. The ruined city, the suffering servant, and the new world. And that first picture, the ruined city, is the most significant of them all. And it's where we'll spend most of our time today. Let me ask, what's the most beautiful city uh, you've ever seen? And what's the most beautiful building in that beautiful city? 
It could be the Empire State Building in New York, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, or 101 in Taipei. You know, in the 8th century BC, the most overwhelming building in the most beautiful city would have been the temple in Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem wasn't just any city. No, it was the city of God. And the temple, it wasn't just any building. No, it was the glory of God. But imagine for a moment being a distant traveler, coming to this great city that you've heard so much about, approaching this great temple with such great expectation, and then, instead of seeing a city of glory, you arrive at the gates and find a city in ruins. That, that's something of the picture that we find here in Isaiah. We find a city under siege. And you might wonder how. How, how did the city of glory become this city in ruins. And Isaiah tells us how by showing us three key turning points. Let me take you to the first one. The very first turning point happened 80 years earlier. It's the year 783 BC. Chapter 6 says it's the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah reigned over Judah for 52 years. And can I tell you, after five decades of stable rule, now, the nation of Judah, it teeters on the brink of destruction. Darkness falls over the city. Sin begins to spread. Corruption takes over. But that's not the only problem. You see, towards the end of Uzziah's reign, if we look over to the east, we find the empire of Assyria. And at that time when Uzziah was dying, Assyria was rising. A new king took the throne. And this king, he was, he was a military hawk, as it were. He had a great political ambition. He wanted to sweep through, conquer every nation in the Middle East, and then march south on Egypt. If you're one of those smaller nations, I wonder how you're going to feel. You see this great superpower rising in the east, and you know he exists to take you out. Surely, as a smaller nation, you would feel terrified. So what do they do? Two of those smaller nations, Syria and Israel, they form a coalition, a grouping. They band together with one clear mission to take down Assyria. You see, what they lack in strength, they'll make up for in number. And then, you know, what this is like school, right? you got the big bully over there, the two scrawny kids over here. They'll form a team. They take on the big guy, but they realize that two of them alone aren't going to be enough. They need more friends. So they approach Judah. And what do they say? Join us. And together we can rule the region as nation and ally. Come with us. It is the only way. But Ahaz... The new king of Judah, this is what he says, no, I'll never join you. So what do they do? Chapter 7, verse 1, Syria and Israel, they wage war on Judah. Just imagine, right, if I'm a Judean living in Judah at that time, I've got Syria and Israel on, one, on the one hand coming for me. I've got Assyria, this great nation on the other hand coming for me. I mean, I, you're literally between a rock and a hard place. 
I'd be terrified. And verse 2 shows us that's exactly how every Judean felt. I just love the picture here, right? The heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Oh, it's vivid, isn't it? They're terrified. But Isaiah urges them, no, 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 don't be afraid. Don't capitulate. Don't give in. Don't turn and rely on Syria and Israel. Stand firm. Rely on the Lord. They will attack you, but He will protect you. Look at what he says in verse 7. It will not happen. Not it might not happen. It will not happen. It will not occur. In fact, within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, will be too shattered to be a people. Don't don't be afraid. Don't rely on them, God says. Rely on me. Don't rely on the nations. Rely on the Lord. You know what? That's exactly what Judah didn't do. That's exactly what they didn't do. Can you guess what they did instead? You might think, oh, you know, being bullied by these two kids in the schoolyard, they ran to the bullies and said, please spare me, I'll rely on you. But no, 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 they didn't do that. They didn't even run to the Lord. Instead of all people they ran to, they ran to Assyria. They they ran to the biggest, baddest bully in the schoolyard and begged him for protection. Look, look at what they say, 2 Kings 16, 7, right? This is how the king of Judah begs the king of Assyria. I'm your servant and your son. So march up and save me from the grasp of the king of Aram and the king of Israel, that is Syria and Israel, who are rising up against me. I have to admit, it's not to say that I would have done any better. It's kind of pathetic, isn't it? I mean, Judah should be God's servant and son. But, but they're running to Assyria going, no, I'll serve you. I'll work for you. They're selling them their souls to Assyria. You know what? In the short term, actually, it worked. It, it wasn't a bad strategy. Running to the biggest, baddest guy in the, play, in the schoolyard is actually, it does work in the short term. Because Assyria actually did protect Judah. Assyria did defeat Syria in 732 BC, and it did wipe out Israel a whole decade later. But but let me ask, I mean, in school I would not dare presume whether you were the bully or bullied, but if you run to the great bully and you say, protect me from everyone else, I'm your servant and your son, what's the rest of your school like? Who do you answer to? Who do you belong to? You see, Judah's deal, it paid off in the short term, but at what cost? For the next 20 years at school, Judah lived as Assyria's slave. If you want to know how the city of glory becomes a city in ruins, this is it. Judah relied on Assyria. It did not rely on the Lord. The second turning point, it happens now two decades later, right? This is the hard thing about reading Isaiah. It moves two decades later without telling you, right? So 715 BC, King Ahaz dies. We're not all crying, right? A new king rises. 2 Kings 18.3, we find that unlike Ahaz, this king, Hezekiah, no, he's good. He did what was right in the Lord's sight. He, what did he do? 
relied on the Lord God of Israel. And look at verse 7. What did, he, what did that look like? He rebelled against the king of Assyria and he did not serve him. Did you see what's happening? <laughs> Two decades earlier, Ahaz rebelled against the Lord and relied on Assyria. Two decades later, Hezekiah rebelled against Assyria and relied on the Lord. He said, no more will I serve the kingdoms or nations of this world. We serve Yahweh. How do you think Assyria would have taken that? Would have taken it pretty well? Oh, sure. Okay, well, go on. Go for it. What happens when you choose to reject an idol you've served for 20 years? What happens when you stand firm against the sins which once gripped your heart for that long? Our idols are a bit like the mafia, aren't they? Right? They protect us as long as we stay with them, but the moment we try to leave, they'll kill us. And it's exactly what Assyria did to Judah. You see, 20 years ago, Judah was so afraid of Syria and Israel over here, so they made a deal with the devil. But now they won out, and Assyria will have none of it. The new king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he marches on Jerusalem. You want out? I'll, I'll send you out, right? I'll take you out. He sweeps through the lands of Judah like a wildfire ripping through a forest. And now with Assyria bearing down on the city, Judah, yet again, is afraid. And yet again, it's just tragic. They don't rely on the Lord. Instead, who do they turn to? They turned to Egypt, that nation of old which enslaved their ancestors. This is nuts at this point, right? In Isaiah 31, uh, 1, this is what the prophet warns. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who depend on horses. No, they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, and they do not seek the Lord. It's, it's almost as if Judah has this disease that they just can't kick. It's just A-B-G. It's anyone but God. Not the other A-B-G. And thankfully, though, the alliance with Egypt is short-lived and Hezekiah turns back to the Lord. You can see this dynamic of Judah just turning to God and running away, turning to God and running away. And now, 701 BC, Assyria finally arrives at the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, I want you to imagine the scene we find here in chapter 36. It is reminiscent of so many movies that you would have watched. Sennacherib sends three of his men on horseback. They ride to the gate. And at the gate, they cry out and shout taunts to Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem. And this is their message. Tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria says this. What are you relying on? What are you relying on? Egypt, please. Verse 6, that splintered reed of the staff will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. Yahweh, your God, isn't he the God who you turned away from? No, 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 no. Verse 8. Make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. He'll look after you. 
And isn't that the offer of every worldly idol? Make a deal with me. Thank God, for once, Hezekiah does what no one else has done. He relies on the Lord. In chapter 37, verse 20, he prays, Now, Lord our God, save us from his power, so that, and get this, all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Yahweh, are God, you alone. Not Sennacherib, not the king of Assyria, not the king of Israel, not the king of Syria. No, you, Yahweh, are God, you alone. Do you see what's happening here, right? Against Syria and Israel, fearful Ahaz relied on Assyria. But now against Assyria, faithful Hezekiah relies on the Lord. And it's worth it. It's worth it. Chapter 7, uh, 37, verse 36, the Lord saved his people and single-handedly wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers overnight. If you want to know how the city of glory became this city in ruins, this is how Judah relied on Assyria. But it finally relied on the Lord. But it's not the end of the story. But yet again, the very same disease strikes. Judah relies then on anyone but God. The, the third turning point happens now in chapter 39 when Hezekiah, he receives a visit from the prince of Babylon. But unlike Assyria, which came waging war, no, Babylon, they come bearing gifts. This is a visit you'd welcome. And what looks like a golden trophy is in fact a poison chalice. It is more deadly to be seduced by sin than to be persecuted by people. Do you realize? It is more deadly to be seduced by sin than to be persecuted by people. If the world comes against us Christians, we can, we can, band, we can see the thread and band together and remain faithful and stand firm for our God. But what if the world comes bearing gifts? What if the world comes making empty promises? What if the world comes saying you can have it all? Hezekiah takes the bait, hook, line, and sinker. In verse 2, this is what he shows Babylon. He shows them all the treasures of Judah. There was nothing in his palace, verse 2, and in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. It's tragic. The very king who defied Assyria's offer, rightly so, now accepts the identical offer from the king of Babylon. He just makes a deal with another devil. Or maybe Satan just came dressed as an angel. Either way, because Judah refused to rely on the Lord in the end, it is cast in judgment into exile in Babylon. Chapter 39, verse 7, this is God's judgment. Some of your descendants will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Brethren, can you, can you see what the picture of this ruined city means? The, the ruined city is a picture of Judah's fickle faith. And the question that the men of Assyria ask the people of Jerusalem is the question that defines this book and is the question that God is asking us today. 
what are you relying on? For Judah, you know the answer. Anyone but God. It's quite sad to read these 39 chapters. They're pretty much saying, who are you relying on? Oh, give me, a, give me Syria. Oh, no, give me, give me Israel. Oh, give me Assyria. Oh, give me Egypt. Give me Babylon. Just, just don't give me the Lord. Isaiah was right in chapter 7, verse 7. If you want to mark anything in your Bible in Isaiah, here it is. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. What are you relying on? Are you like Judah? Do you rely on anyone but God? Let me show you how this plays out for so many of us today. We live in fear, don't we? Do you realize that fear is what drove their trust? Fear is what drove their fear of Syria and Israel, fear of Assyria, fear of Babylon. So we live our lives in fear. Fear that we will amount to nothing in life. And so what do we do? We play the type. We rely on having a successful career. And just like Judah sold its soul to Assyria, what do we do? We sell our souls to the idol of success. You don't have to be a Christian, though, to realize that success never really lasts. It does come to bite you in the backside pretty quickly. It never truly fulfills. And so, in that moment, right, we realize the bankruptcy of of being a slave and son to our work. So we say, I'll rely on something else. And you're BLT leader, your Christian friend comes along and says, rely on the Lord. And you're like, yeah, but nah, anyone but him. So what do we do? Just as we're about to rely on the Lord, the career we once served punishes us for trying to leave. It says to us, or at least we think to ourselves, you were never good enough. You can never make the cut. You're nothing. So we're afraid. And what do we do? We, we run, not to the Lord, we run to Egypt, that old familiar master. The acceptance of everyone around us. But yet again, we so quickly realize that there's no hope in such a futile God. So again, your friend comes along, have you thought about relying on the Lord? Yeah. I'll just try that other thing first. And just as we're about to consider relying on the Lord, that seductive idol of a relationship and romance comes bearing gifts. And just like Hezekiah, we give it everything. The best of our time, the best of our hearts. But you realize, again, a relationship is no different from any other idol. They all result in judgment and exile. Maybe it's none of those different things. Maybe it's the people we rely on. The number of people I speak to day to day who say, I just keep relying on the wrong people, end up still relying on different wrong people. I had this friend I trusted and relied on so much, but they, just, they betrayed me, and I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I just couldn't stay in that relationship, so I left. And you hear God say, trust in me, on anyone but you. So we run to another relationship, oh, and it may be them. And they fail us, anyone but you. 
and we run to this dating relationship, but then it doesn't work out with anyone but you. When will we realize, right, what Hezekiah prayed in chapter 37, verse 16? The Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Not not Syria, not, not Israel, not Assyria, not Egypt, not Babylon, not our work, not others' acceptance, and not a relationship. Jesus. Jesus is the king over everything at every time and in every place. You just keep, you wonder, right? When will we stop running after anything but God? When will we realize that everything else in this world just can't be relied upon? When will we realize that Jesus is the only king truly worth relying on? You see, the ruined city is a picture of our faithlessness. And it's overwhelming. But our second picture is that of a suffering servant. You see, in chapter 38 and 39, we were at the start of the 6th century BC, and Judah had just been exiled into Babylon. But now suddenly, here in chapter 40, what happens? It's like we just, we time jump 70 years into the future and land at the end of that exile. And God comes now, not in judgment, but in salvation. It's beautiful. He he speaks words of comfort, of forgiveness, of restoration. He promises, I'm going to come and lead you out of exile. I'm going to bring you home. But I want you to notice what God is saving Judah from. Yes, on the one hand, he's redeeming Judah out of exile in Babylon. He's saving them from a human enemy. But but even more deeply, he's saving Judah from her sin. He's saving Judah from his judgment. Just look at chapter 40, verse 2, and see what he says, right? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her forced time of that a time of forced labor is over. There's a human reality, but here's a deeper reality. Her iniquity has been pardoned. And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If you want to know what Judah's great problem is, if you want to know what our great problem is, it's not the powers of our world, but it's the sin of our hearts and the wrath of our God. That is our deepest problem. You see, we don't just need salvation out there. We need forgiveness for what's in here. But if you were tracking with me at that first point, and you stop and think about everything that Judah had done, when you think about just how faithless Judah was, when you think about how Judah had run after anyone but God, Syria, Israel, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, why would God forgive her? Why should God forgive her? Why should God forgive us? Chapter 43, verse 4. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. Why would the Lord, whom we have betrayed, 
everyone else. Forgive us and save us. Because he loves us. Chapter 49, verse 15, this is what God asks. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. It's beautiful. Breathtaking. Overwhelming. The Lord whom we betrayed time and time and time again for anyone and everything else forgives our betrayal because he loves you more than a mother loves her own child. He loves us so much that he forgives us by coming to us as a suffering servant to die for us. If you want to see a picture of your salvation, read Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And you know this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him by his wounds, we are healed. How does the God whom we have betrayed forgive us? Not by coming as a mighty king or a conquering warrior, but by coming as a suffering servant who dies in your place and who bears the judgment that you deserve. Can you see this, friends? The suffering servant isn't just a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of love. There's so many one-liners hidden in Isaiah that you just take out and her true worth. Chapter 54, verse 10. What does God say? Though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. Can you see the picture that Isaiah is painting? When you take the ruined city and put it side by side with the suffering servant, what do we see? The mighty king over every nation whom we have betrayed, humbles himself as a suffering servant, dies in your place, also that he might forgive you. All because he loves you. With a God like that, why would we ever want to run to anything else? What reason could we possibly have to rely on anyone but God Almighty who literally loved you to death? Why would we ever rely on Syria, Israel, Assyria, Egypt, or Babylon? Why would we ever rely on our work, our relationships, our accomplishments, our success, or ourself? If you want to know who you should rely on, answer this question, who else could love you like our God? If you're not a Christian, 
look at this suffering servant and see the extent of God's love for you and do what Judah failed to do. Rely on Jesus with your whole life. The ruined city is a picture of our faithlessness. But the suffering servant is a picture of our salvation. And it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And yet, it's not even the full extent of it. Because in chapters 56 to 66, the last third of our book, Isaiah, he, he goes into Stella. He shows that our forgiveness, oh gosh, it's only the first part of God's cosmic plan to transform the whole world. That the gospel has our salvation at its heart, but it has the world as its goal. I want you to see this, the third and final picture. The new world. What's the most beautiful place you've ever been to? Uh, one of my friends, Sam, tells me about the haunting beauty of Scotland, and he says it'll take your breath away. But even the moors of Scotland are but a shadow to the new world that God is creating. And it all starts with a new Jerusalem, that ruined city now restored. And I want to take you on a sweep of chapters 56 to 66 to show you the beauty of this new world that God is creating. So follow with me. We're going to come thick and fast. In chapter 60, it is a city of light where God's glory shines and gives life to all people. It is a city of safety whose gates will always be open. They will never be shut day or night. In chapter 55, it is a city of satisfaction where the thirsty are invited to come and drink and eat what is good and enjoy the choicest of foods. In chapter 61, it is a city of joy, where those who once grieved death will now wear a crown of beauty instead of ashes. In chapter 56, it is a city for all people. To the foreigner who has no home, it will be a house of prayer for all nations. To the unmarried and childless who have no family, it will be a house within which God will give you a memorial and a name better than, any, than many sons and daughters. And from that city of light and life, God will transform the whole world. Chapter 60, verse 3, nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. You see, in chapter 65, we read that this new city, the ruined city now restored, it will be the center of a new heaven and a new earth. And in this world, for all who have been forgiven by God, it will be a world where the sound of weeping and crying will be no longer heard. A world where miscarriages and stillbirths will be no more. A nursing infant will no longer live only a few days. It will be a world where we will live forever. And the one who dies at 100 years old will be mourned as a young man. It will be a world where Satan, wickedness, and evil will be finally destroyed. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like cattle. But Satan's food will be dust. Can you see what Isaiah sees? A world without disaster, a world without depression, a world without disease, a world without death. 
can you see what he sees? The ruined city is a picture of our faithlessness. The suffering servant is a picture of our salvation. And the new world is a picture of our future. And it's overwhelming. When you look at our world, what do you see? Maybe you see a dark place full of sorrow and pain. When you look at your own life, what do you see? Maybe you see a life that is broken and the mess that you've made out of it. You've relied on all the wrong people at all the wrong times and in all the wrong places. You've been hurt and scarred and you feel like you can rely on no one else but yourself. And just like Judah, you're afraid. And we sit there and wonder, who can turn this around? Who can transform my life? Who can make something of the mess of my life? I want you to hear what Isaiah would say. Who can make something? Who can transform the mess of my life? You can't. But God can. He is the almighty king over every nation and every power. And he can use that great power to transform your life just like he transforms Jerusalem. God alone is strong enough to restore your life just like he'll restore our world. He alone is mighty enough to change the ruined city of your heart into a new world of light and life. And he's done it by coming to us as one of us, as a suffering servant who died in our place, bore our judgment, forgave our sin, restored our lives, all because He loves us. If I were to summarize how I feel about Isaiah in one sentence, here it is. The thought... The mere thought that God Almighty, whom I have betrayed for anyone else, would die to save this ruined life out of nothing but love, and then use my broken life to transform the whole world, it's overwhelming. I'm overwhelmed at God's power. I'm overwhelmed at God's beauty. I'm overwhelmed at God's love. And as we close, I want to show you one final overwhelming vision. I want to lift your eyes to see something that is a far more powerful sight than anything in this world. It's right there in Isaiah 33, which we heard, read, and saw before. Brothers and sisters, lift your eyes. Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. 
The Lord is our King. He will save us. How could we ever rely on anyone else? Let me pray. King of glory, almighty God, wonderful Saviour. We behold you in your beauty and stand overwhelmed. You alone can save us. Teach us to rely on you and see you as the King who works his infinite power for our infinite good, out of an infinite love for us. Help us see Jesus, in whose name we pray.